Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by An American Pickle. An American Pickle stars Seth Rogen as a 1920s factory worker named Herschel Greenbaum and his great-grandson Ben. When Herschel falls into a vat of pickles, he is perfectly preserved for 100 years and emerges in present-day Brooklyn. An American Pickle tells the uniquely heartwarming story of Herschel and Ben as they learn the meaning of family. Stream the new Max original in American Pickle August 6th, only on HBO Max, rated PG-13. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about Oliver Stone. Amanda, I, in my mind, have been circling a podcast episode about Oliver Stone probably since about 1991, which is when I first had some consciousness about the work of one of the most fascinating figures of the last 40 years in American cinema. There's a reason we're going to be having an episode conversation about Stone today, which is that he has a new memoir. That memoir is called Chasing the Light, Writing, Directing, and Surviving Platoon, Midnight Express, Scarface, Salvador, and the Movie Game. It's a very interesting book. You and I have both read it. I think we were both riveted in some ways and perhaps frustrated, confused, devastated in other ways. Before we get into the book, though, and before we get into how we're going to talk about the scope, the massive scope, the unbelievable scope of Oliver Stone's career, when I say Oliver Stone, what do you think? Conspiracy theorist, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to be totally honest, and and filmmaker, and and really, and boomer, and I think that that is going to inflect a lot of the way that I uh, talk about Oliver Stone and his filmography because I am a generation younger. I am the child of boomers, and I came to Oliver Stone's work and to Oliver Stone's understanding of the world a generation after um, he lived it and made it, and it was very funny in rewatching. Everything from Platoon to to Wall Street to JFK um, to realize the way in which those movies shaped my understanding, visual and political, about Vietnam and about JFK and about how we examine America and the government. And I am both like a child of Oliver Stone's world and maybe because of time and the way the world has changed, a a skeptic of Oliver Stone's world at this point, which is just to say I'm the next generation. I think a lot of this will be boomer versus millennial. And, and, And that's good. That's how the world should work. I think even Oliver Stone would agree with that, though maybe not. We can talk about it. But I don't know. What do you think of? Well, you've made already so many good points. I think he's an artist who strains credulity while also, I think, enlivening imaginations. He's somebody who is obviously immensely thoughtful and intellectual and spiritual and simultaneously feels like he is completely out of control and trying to break the boundaries and stretch the concept of the truth all the time. And so he's just a a generational paradoxical figure. He's He's a person who I think it makes immensely entertaining movies that don't always stand up to deep examination. And so I think he is he is an archetypal baby boomer figure in that way, in that he is there's a certitude about his mission and there's an earnestness and a sincerity to the message that he's trying to send. But also underlying that is perhaps a kind of a cynicism and a skepticism about what 
he should be doing with his time versus what he's actually doing with his time. And so I, you know, I find I've always found him to be fascinating, maybe not as a human being per se, but at least the stories that he tries to tell. I was going to say, I do think he's interesting as a filmmaker and, and, but also as a person. And we're going to talk about all the different ways in which Oliver Stone, like quote, breaks the rules. But I have been thinking a lot as I have been reading his book, which is a fantastic read. I will just say that the, the guy can write. Um, and have also been revisiting his work that you and I are trained to as much as we can, or at least I was in college, trained to separate the the artist and the art. The art has to stand on its own. You can't conflate the filmmaker and the and the work. And you also need to understand that the work and the intention are possibly separate as well. And Oliver Stone just makes a mess of all of that. And he makes a mess of that in his actual art. And he makes a mess of that in the life that he lives and in the interviews that he gives and the work that he pursues. And to me, that's exciting because it opens up a conversation to talk about what can you take seriously and what is cynical and what is sincere and what is true and what is not true and how are we like and who is responsible, which is at least a different way to talk about art. So, you know, I give him that even though I don't always agree with where I think Oliver Stone comes down on those the answers to those questions. But even there, I'm just guessing. Well, I think if you, if you look at the book, you certainly are looking at the man, or at least the, the the self-perception of the man. And so we'll talk a lot about him and his story and his life and and his, you know, the way he is capturing his own life on the page, which I, I agree. I mean, he's just, in case you didn't know, this is an Oscar-winning screenwriter. This is one of the great movie writers of the last 40 years. This is also, you know, as a person who didn't just write his own films, but wrote Scarface and Conan the Barbarian and a number of other films over the years. So he knows what he's doing on the page. But he is also somebody who, if you look at the political thought, not like a straight line where there is a left and a right, but if you look at it like a wheel, like a circle, and if you go too far from one side of the circle to the other, you can land, you can may think you are a liberal person and find yourself with right-wing ideology or libertarian ideology. And the reverse can also be true. And I think one of the reasons it's really hard to unpack not just what Oliver Stone says in interviews or what he even um portrays in his documentaries, but even what he puts in his films is it feels like he's constantly running around that track, that circle of political thought. And so he's actually a perfect figure for this moment where there is this desperation to find art that coincides with our political ideology or our sense of what the world should look like. And as you said, Oliver makes a mess of that. He really is trying to, he's contradicting himself in real time. He's contradicting the sensibilities of that kind of baby boomer anti-war mentality. But on the other hand, he's like an avatar, like a spirit animal of truth for a certain kind of humanism. And that sounds really kind of haughty, but I, I think he really wants to representationally be a person who is thinking about putting people before government, business, political structures. And it's complicated, right? Because he's a essentially a wealthy, well-to-do white man who was born in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And so he had so much opportunity to do the things that he wanted to do in a way that other people don't. So he's not, he's just not a tidy figure for that pursuit of humanism. It's interesting that you said he's putting people in front of institutions and and ideas and and governments, because I think that's true, but it's usually one person 
And if you look at his entire, his filmography, and and really, I think even if you look at how he parses um, a lot of political issues, but it's it's not the greater good. It's usually focused on one character who is often a man and quite often a, a white man. And it is and it is understanding history through a single person's experience. So it's like, it's almost, I mean, he certainly subscribes to a great man theory of history, but at the same time is also reversing it, which is like the the, the one person's experience of history, which can be uh, really exhilarating in certain films that we'll talk about and really, really misguided, I find, or not even misguided, but just doesn't work and isn't illuminating in the way that he thinks it is. Um, in, in certain aspects. And then also in certain cases, it can just be about himself. And it is, I, the thing that makes his, his memoir so electric is that it really is self-mythologizing and he is really trying to understand himself and trying to pin down that constantly moving wheel, as you said, simultaneously. And, and I really admire having access to that. I obviously read a lot of celebrity junk and, and memoirs and, um, interested in trying to have access to people's ideas and inner thoughts and understand their characters. And most people won't give it up in that way and won't share and won't be as open and messy and, as, as Oliver Stone is. And that's true of the book. And that's true of his politics, for sure. And it's true of his filmmaking. The great man theory is is really relevant to this conversation, not just because of the book and not just because of the films, but because it's a little bit unclear. It's a sort of a chicken and the egg or the egg proposition with him. Does he subscribe to those theories? Because as we read about in this book, he is interested in the dramatic pursuit. He has a pretty clear understanding, literarily, of how to tell a strong story. And that story is usually through a Homer-like figure or a Ahab-like figure, somebody who is, you know, on a on an indomitable quest to achieve something that seems impossible. He's he's really passionate about this, and you know, again, there is something kind of haughty about this, but also he, he just he seems to come to it very sincerely, and so he uses Jim Garrison in JFK, or he uses Jim Morrison in The Doors, or he uses Ron Kovic in Born on the Fourth of July as these avatars, as these great men who are seeking to achieve something that no one else could even perceive as possible. And I think Oliver Stone sees himself in a very similar fashion. He sees himself as this well-to-do white guy who volunteers for the Vietnam War to explode his privilege and to understand the world in a hopefully deeper way. And then after he does that, he goes through this tremendously traumatic experience in the war. And then that becomes a centerpiece of the stories that he tells for the next 25 years. And it, it it's fascinating to know kind of which came first. Was it the urge to tell dramatic stories or was it that he experienced life and he had a, he came to understand life as a series of stories, especially American stories about great men, and then chose to pursue those stories as his life's work. It's a, it's kind of a fascinating what if in terms of how he pursued all of his work. I would add that there is also possibly a middle ground where he is trying to understand what happened to him and his own experience through the narrative structures that are uh, familiar to him and um, and can help further that experience. And again, that's that's a lot of artist versus art and, you know, marrying the two things, which we're, quote, not supposed to do. But we're going to break all of the rules in this podcast. So let's talk about what this podcast is going to be. Before we get into a conversation about the book where we talk about the artist, uh, 
later in the show, we're going to we're going to play a new game. It's an old game for those of us who were alive in 2006 when <laughs> I first heard about this game, but it's new to this podcast. It's a it's fuck Mary kill. So Amanda and I have chosen a handful of films, a number of films that we would like to uh, copulate with that Oliver Stone made that we would like to uh, spend eternity with and that we would like to destroy immediately. So that is one way for us to travel through this 20 film filmography, all of these documentaries that he's made, all of this work that he's put on the page and on screen over time. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested because I, I know that you are a, you're a skeptical Oliver Stone consumer. Yeah, I'm a skeptical consumer of everything. And I also hope that Oliver Stone himself would understand the, the skeptical approach that I bring to his films because he is also a skeptic. Don't trust anything. Or if you did trust everything, anything, then you're going to pay the price for it. So, yes, we will talk about Oliver Stone's filmography. I think it is very interesting to watch it as a millennial. It is interesting to watch it as a woman, though we won't dwell on that. But, um, I, you know, because I, like it's kind of boring at the end of the day. We're engaging with Oliver Stone's work. But I have certainly learned some things about a certain generation of masculinity that um, definitely are, are different than my day-to-day life. And, you know, that's that's the point to an extent. Um, I, I think it's also just really interesting to examine how Oliver Stone has influenced the way that you and I watch movies and what lessons other people and he himself have taken from it and and what works and, and what we would rather get rid of. Yeah, I'm excited. Honestly, it'll come as no surprise to you or anybody who has heard me talk on the show just to talk about the very formal aspects of what he does as a filmmaker because he's such an outspoken and generational political figure that I think that that has kind of subsumed a lot of the work that he has done. In fact, in an interview in the New York Times Magazine last week, David Marchese directly asked him that question. And, you know, I don't think Stone necessarily gave the kind of answer that we wanted. You know, it was a sort of like no regrets, man. That was his answer. And yeah, he it, it gave a lot of answers in that particular interview that we'll be discussing. I recommend yes. it. It's a, it's a great piece. I mean, there have been some very interesting interviews with Stone in the last few weeks. He knows how to talk. That's part of the reason why he has stayed in the consciousness for as long as he has, is he has impressively stoked the flames with his work and with his words. So let's talk about the words a little bit. This is a fascinating book. And I think we should just start from the beginning because the first chapter of Chasing the Light is called Child of Divorce. And Amanda, uh, for <laughs> the listeners out there who uh, heard our Marriage Story episode, for example, or have heard us talk about marriage in any way, shape, or form in the last couple of years, we too are children of divorce. And I will say that there are parts of his story about his parents and about the way that he was raised that were resonant for me and that I identified with. And then there were other parts that I found confounding and almost grotesque. What did you think of, of young Oliver in, in, in his own eye? I think I really excitedly looked up from the book and, and announced to my husband and then also texted you like, oh my God, it's the child of divorce chapter because it. I, I do always kind of see that as a a source key for understanding really anybody. I, he approaches it with more distance than than you or I do, I think, which in one sense makes a lot of sense because he's older than us. So he has quite literally more time and distance from it. And I think also, you know, expectations of marriage and and things were different 30 or 40 years ago. The child of divorce chapter for me is actually less about divorce and more about his particular 
relationship to both of his parents, which are extremely important to him, um, as anyone who has seen any of his films would know, because we're going to talk about daddy issues. But yeah, to me, it was just a way of working through those relationships, which he carries definitely through the book. I wanted to read a passage from the book about this specific phase of his life, because as you said, it's, it's, there is some critical distance, but he is also trying to tangle with his feelings. And, you know, this is a guy who he was born in 1946. His father was a GI. His mother was a woman living in Paris who his father met and brought her back to the States. And, you know, they have that very kind of traditional American romance. You know, you could imagine them being in that photo of the naval officer and the woman in the middle of the street on 42nd Street during a parade kissing. And then, of course, like things come apart like so many things did in the 1950s. But he wrote something interesting here that I wanted to share. Um, This is a consciousness that is shared by most children of divorce, that our lives, our being itself, is the creation of many lies. If my parents had known each other truly before they were married, they would have never united and I would have never existed. Children like me are born out of that original lie and living a false front, We suffer for it when we feel that nothing and nobody can ever be trusted again. Adults become dangerous. Reality becomes loneliness. Love either does not exist or cannot survive. And my past 15 years on Earth was a, quote, fake past, a delusion. So in case you're wondering why Oliver Stone's films are paranoid and riddled with doubt, uh, it's it's all there in the opening stages of this book in a very, very Freudian way. And throughout the early stages of it, you also come to learn that Oliver Stone was is outright in love with his mother and has strong physical urging for his mother, which is a lot to take in, although radically honest in the way that he sometimes is. But also maybe he is trying to kind of shock and provoke us in the way that it seems like Stone likes to shock and provoke. And so it's this really complicated portrait of a young guy who has, you know, these wild mommy and daddy issues that may or may not be informing this life's work. Yeah, but, you know, even the mom stuff is him leaning on, you know, the Oedipal myth in order and using older narrative frameworks in order to help understand himself. You know, I listened to the passage that you just read, and I think I'm really glad that my parents put me in therapy shortly after the divorce. Me like, too. <laughs> yes. I just like, you know, and I, I and I feel sad that Oliver Stone didn't get access to that therapy yes. because I had the same just, thought. You know, because like at the end of the day, it's like really not about you that much, man. It's just not. And in a lot of ways, after what every single Oliver Stone movie, you could just say it's really not that much about you, man. So that is hilarious, too. But yeah, I think there's a combination of uh, not having worked through some of the emotions that maybe we a generation later did get to work through. And that doesn't just go through divorce. That goes through a lot of political issues as well. And then also him having a flair for the dramatic in the very little dramatic sense. That's how he uh, understands the world and tells stories about himself and everything else. Yeah, I I think that's exactly right. It seems like he was not given the opportunity or did not know how to express himself at this phase. This is the early 1960s when a lot of this stuff is happening. We're not the consciousness that we had about the idea of you know therapy and communicating with your children about divorce that didn't exist 45, 50, 60 years ago. Yeah. And again, it's just peak boomer stuff. And I can just, I don't know if you are a a boomer and listening to two millennials talking about Oliver Stone right now, like, I'm sorry. I, I apologize. It must be really annoying, (laughs) 
but I, I, it, some of it is just such a product of the time and generation and not even just, I mean, that is true, but also like archetypically, like that is what we're talking about when we say, okay, boomer on TikTok or whatever, I guess Instagram, because millennials don't know how to use TikTok, but it is, it's, and in a way it's a credit to him that even in his, his politics and his emotions, he is telling a story at that broad generational level. Yeah, I, I I think he comes by it honestly. I just don't. Again, I don't know if it's chicken or egg. I don't know if if he is a is a drama queen, for lack of a better phrase, or if he is naturally yes. born this way. You know, like I, it's it's just impossible to say. It is nature or nurture, and like the nurture cl- clearly seems to have been a challenging uh, aspect of his early life, and that leads to these fascinating decisions that that frankly most of his other kind of um, boomer generation cohort don't pursue. Now, we know that, you know, a lot of boomers, especially politically active boomers, participated in the protest movement, participated in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, women's liberation. These are obviously key talking points. They're generational points. They're generational life points for my mother, for example. She was a very active person in the world in that way. But for Stone, he does something a little bit different. He He's a very bright guy, obviously, but he's also a child of privilege. His father went to Yale, and so he went to Yale. And he goes to Yale after spending some time in boarding school, and he kind of washes out after a year. He seems kind of bored. He seems kind of disinterested. He's unclear if he's kind of a stoner at this point. And he decides to leave Yale to go teach in Saigon, teach English for a year, which is, you know, it's certainly like programs like Teach for America exist. And this is a not uncommon thing that, that frankly, a lot of children of privilege do to sort of get a gap year or to get some new life experience. But so he sees Vietnam really at the earliest stages of the, the conflict in that country. And that's this is right in the heart of Johnson's uh, second term, I suppose. And rather than flee and find a way to dodge the draft or, um, you know, put as much distance between himself and Vietnam as possible, instead he comes back to the States and he enlists in the army as an infantryman. And, you know, it is it is clearly the signature choice of his life. And it is the thing that has completely shaped him. It is the thing that has shaped his art and formed all of his art. How much of this stuff, these choices, were you aware of when you were watching his movies? And how much of this did, did it kind of inform the films anew for you? I think none at the time, though a lot of this is in the films. I mean, in Platoon, he gives that exact choice to the Charlie Sheen character. And there is a conversation between Charlie Sheen and another soldier where Charlie Sheen's character explains his rationale and is told, like, that's something only rich people would say, I think. I'm, like, paraphrasing it. Um, Which, you know, you have to... It's in the movie. It's in the script. So Oliver Stone is aware of that and is reckoning with that. So I think I was maybe not aware of it in a literal sense, certainly not the first time I saw Platoon. Though, again, that's another thing where when you come to these films as a person seeing the art versus being aware of the artist, and probably I had some awareness of Oliver Stone and a later phase of Oliver Stone. So I think you can fill... You can feel it in the work, but it it does make you go back having having read all of this and want to ask a lot of questions. Well, he does a fascinating thing in the structure of the book. So the the section that is 
functionally, after his childhood, is functionally about Vietnam. It's very short. He doesn't spend a lot of time in the book on the war in real time because the book is told mostly chronologically, but we get more time about Vietnam and the people that he experienced and what he went through and, you know, the characters who would eventually become the figures that we see in Platoon that that are largely based on real life figures. That all comes later when he's writing, when he's writing the screenplay for a film called Break, which never gets made. And then when he starts writing Platoon, which I think is not until about 1976 or so, which is really the film that kind of gets him on the map in Hollywood, even though it isn't made for another 10 years after that. So again, this like this concept of artifice and shaping your own narrative is such a big part of this stuff. So we don't even necessarily see like the more documentary aspect of his Vietnam experience, even in his own memoir, which I, I thought was kind of a fascinating choice. Yeah, I went straight child of therapy on that and was like, this is not avoidance because that's unfair, but it's like very clear that the only way that he's able to understand and talk through it is is through the filmmaking. And I mean, that, and that's very clear in the work as well, but it was clarifying for me of just like, oh, you, I mean, your life's work has been to understand what happened to you and what you went through. Yes. I mean, and that is something that like, that just creates a lot of empathy from me, honestly. I, I I think we can, It's he's a very easy filmmaker to joke about and just to be like, oh God, Oliver Stone at it again. But I think when you see, when you try to understand him in that exact way, and I, I completely agree with what you just said, I think that there is clearly an attempt to put his feelings and his understanding into the work and not on the page, even though he's putting things on the page in the first chapter about his parents that are kind of like mind-blowingly personal and specific and have clearly not left him. And there must have been so much that happened in Vietnam over the course of the 15 months he served that he's not putting on the page because either it's too difficult or he just needs another way to channel that information, which is just, it's, it's like it's a reason to read these books is to better understand these people. Um, so he serves in Vietnam. He does 15 months. And he's awarded a, a Purple Heart, and he's he's wounded, I think, three times. And he has a, a tough go. It's I think it's 67 is the, to 68 are the years that he serves, which is obviously right on the precipice of when America sort of explodes in 68 with the anti-war movement. And so he essentially uh, leaves the armed services and goes to Mexico and um, I guess attempts to smuggle some drugs and is arrested. Move, trying to move into the United States and is is basically bailed out of prison by his his, his rich dad who knows the right people to get out. And not again, basically not. I mean, that's what happens. And then he has one line. It, it's something to the effect of like money. It fixes everything or something like that. And it's told in a self, maybe not self lacerating, but in a self-conscious and knowing way like that. There's the reason that that one line is there, but it's one line. Yeah. And he, I mean, he says over and over again in the book, if I were black or if I were Latino or if I were this or if I were that, I just would not be where I am. He has a, he does have a, a self-awareness about that, but it doesn't change the fact that all of these experiences are so deeply informing all the things that he's going to do. This guy got arrested for trying to smuggle drugs across the border and got out of prison serving virtually no time. And if he were any other person, he probably would have spent three years in a Mexican prison. That's just, that's just ludicrous. And so I like I think you kind of have to bring all of this information now when you revisit these movies. And I hope if people are listening, they will revisit the movies because they're so interesting in the context of the book. You know, they clearly inform so much. This is a guy who went on to write the movie Midnight Express, for which he won an Oscar, which is about somebody who tried to smuggle drugs out of a foreign country. It's all it's all there in the text, which is so fascinating. So somehow he manages to get himself out, or his father gets him out, 
And within a couple of years, he's at NYU film school. And he's decided that he wants to be a filmmaker. He had wanted to be a novelist as a kid. He wrote a novel. He thought it was very bad. It didn't pan out. And then he starts working on screenplays and thinking about what kind of stories he wants to tell and what he wants his life to be. And he shows up at NYU in the, in the 70s. And who's there but Martin Scorsese is his professor of all people to be teaching him. And even though Oliver Stone is this green jacket wearing, sullen Vietnam vet who rarely speaks, Martin Scorsese identifies that this is a true talent. This is a guy who's not at all like any of his classmates, or at least not in Oliver's perception, you know, that he's a loner. But after he makes his first short film last year in Vietnam, Scorsese identifies the film and says, that is a filmmaker. That's a, this is a famous story. It's such a great moment. I mean, you can hear him saying it. Well, and you can hear the pause before Scorsese says like, that's a filmmaker. It's yeah. It's a, it's a great story. It's a story that I had heard before. It's one of the few things in the book that I had read before because it's part of the stone mythology of how he came to be. And it's interesting too because over the years, many people have speculated that perhaps Taxi Driver is based on Oliver Stone because Taxi Driver is about a Vietnam vet who drove a cab. Oliver Stone drove a cab in New York in the 70s to, to help pay for his lifestyle. You know, he was this kind of like dissolute, paranoid, you know, person with a with a history of, of, uh, of, of time... Uh, in the war and and violence and the, the complexity of thought that goes into that film. Stone says, this is not about me, understandably trying to distance himself from Travis Bickle. But, you know, this this collision and this time in American movies, as you know, is like the most interesting time we're ever going to have, this sort of mid to late 70s. And so Stone being kind of at the feet of Scorsese and then later being at the feet of people like De Palma and Spielberg and all these people who went on to make Hollywood for the next 30 years. Also, is I don't know if it's grand design or good luck or what, but he just, he finds himself in this perfect position. So he's in New York city. He meets a Lebanese woman named Najwa Sarkis, who I spoke, I guess works for the, the, the embassy, um, in, in Lebanon. And so she has, she's a, a bit older than him and she has a high power job. And he writes quite freely about how she was an elegant and beautiful woman who he didn't love. And they were, they were friends and they had a strong partnership, but he already like he evinces, um, I don't, I, this like confusing emotional front, you know, there's something about the way that Oliver Stone tells the story of his life that is simultaneously very raw and self-effacing and also completely difficult to parse. What do you, what do you think about the New York period of Stone? I think he's comfortable in a world of ideas and ambitions and not comfortable in the world of emotions. And so anytime he has to talk about the, the people in his life, whether it's his parents or um, his first wife and no spoilers, but there's a second wife. And also I believe a third Um, it's, you can see him trying to wrestle with the language and the emotions themselves. It seems a bit uh, blocked off. And so then the language that he uses is um, very representative of his time and place in the world, which means it's not always as progressive as we might wish it to be. No, certainly not. Um, So while he's in New York, he makes the decision that he wants to be a filmmaker formally. He tells the story of having a nightmare one night about three figures that haunt him who as an author character and eventually kill all of the people in his life. And this nightmare becomes his first movie in 1974. There's a very little scene, low budget movie called Seizure. It's not very good. I did rewatch it. Um, 
you know, it's one part horror, one part paranoid thriller. You can see the kind of the makings of where Stone's imagination is going in the movie, but it's an interesting choice because you can see that he's he made a film before he was ready to make a film, as is so often the case with so many filmmakers. And it's so unlike so many of those other guys that I was just referring to, unlike Scorsese, unlike, you know, De Palma or Spielberg, those guys who start, who made movies in their early 20s and were ready. You know, Steven Spielberg at 20 years old was ready to be Steven Spielberg. And Stone is a little bit more of a slow burn in some respects. And he he kind of constantly refers to that throughout this book. There's this sense that even though he's got all the opportunity in the world, he's not quite getting the opportunity that he wants. And so there's something kind of confusing about this guy who really has done it all as far as filmmakers go, and yet still seems kind of steamed about the fact that he had to wait until he was in his mid-30s to be as great as he would become. Yeah, that's a theme for him in general of someone who um, really has been given every opportunity that America can afford someone and is just still like, I have been betrayed by America. And he was betrayed by America um, in an actual, in the sense of being in Vietnam, but kind of parsing the ideological aspects of that and the and the expectations that come with being Oliver Stone is um a very interesting exercise and certainly animates all of his all of his work. Before he fully decides to throw his hat in the ring as a screenwriter for the next 10 years, he he kind of dabbles. You know, he makes seizure, he's thinking about what he's going to do and as he's thinking about his writing career, he 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 writes he's writing something interesting in the book that I want to want to share. So he writes rather than pursue a career as an actor, he writes, I wanted to be my looks have my own ideas, live in my body, not rent it. I had ego, but unlike a good actor, I couldn't locate it. I didn't know who the hell I was, and that mystery drew me inward, searching. Maybe by connecting my own dots, I could help not just myself, but others to see things they hadn't seen before. I could, as a playwright or director, bring actors to realizations they could not find on their own. The writer can become the handholder of the actor's dreams. The writer brainwashes an actor into feeling the script's words are his own feelings. Perhaps I was being arrogant, but toward those goals, I was driven to stumble with a blind and zealous faith. The perhaps I was being arrogant clause could be at the beginning of virtually every page he <laughs> writes in this book. Um, but it, it, it's true. And it's an interesting, you know, I think there's some pretty strong self-analysis here, you know, because Oliver Stone is a kind of a handsome, dashing, six foot three war veteran. You know, he's kind of Audie Murphy for the baby boomer generation. But he doesn't pursue that. He pursues something that is like a little bit more metaphysical, a little bit more romantic and spiritual and also like power driven. You know, there's like a power to being in charge of the writing and the directing of a film. And so he goes on this quest to seek all that stuff out. Yeah, I I thought when you were reading this that this was going to be the passage that's maybe later on where he just says that as a director, he's God on a set. Which in a in a way I su- suppose it's true as or is certainly one person's and and one school's definition of being a, a director, but I think everything that you said is true. I do also just see it as a little bit of not even revisionist history because that's a phrase you have to be careful with with Oliver Stone, but it's a it's a way of understanding pretty practical choices. And pretty, uh, he is an extremely successful person and has navigated himself into a lot of situations and has made like 10 unbelievably successful movies. A, A lot comes with privilege. A lot comes with luck. But 
also, this is a guy who like maybe understood a little bit more of what he was doing than I think he wants to acknowledge in this book. Yeah. And it's hard to know if it's because he's a, he was a great operator or it's because he was truly gifted or probably most likely a combination of both. Yeah. And the the book kind of transitions pretty hard about, about page 100 from you know the the unknown details of this guy's life up until the age of about 25 to a lot of things that we're much more familiar with when he starts to enter his early 30s. So he moves out to Los Angeles. He gets a writing gig, learning at the feet of Robert Bolt, the screenwriting legend. People may remember him getting a shout out from Quentin Tarantino uh, earlier this year at the Golden Globes when he dedicated his Golden Globe to Bolt. Bolt wrote Lawrence of Arabia, Man for All Seasons, The Mission. Bolt's movies, to me, are very instructive for the kinds of stories that Oliver Stone would go on to tell these action-oriented morality plays that are kind of tests of masculine metal. That's really, those are the stories that Bolt told. And he clearly was a very rigorous teacher and taught Stone a lot. And not everybody gets to, you know, learn at the feet of the single most gifted screenwriter of a generation. And and Stone did get that. And the, the film that they wrote ultimately never was made but it clearly sets him on a course to figure out who he's going to become, which is at first this kind of wonderkind screenwriter. And his next project in 1978 is Midnight Express, as we mentioned, the Alan Parker film about Billy Hayes, a guy who tried to smuggle hash out of Turkey. And that movie was a sensation. And at the age of 31, Stone becomes an Oscar winner. And then all of a sudden we enter phase two of the book, which is L.A., his second marriage to a woman named Elizabeth, a, a blonde idyllic American dream woman in his eyes. And suddenly they both get very interested in cocaine. They start getting a lot of money. And then he starts writing Scarface. And this is really like the stone myth, the life that we know about. And this will ultimately be a segue into starting to talk about his films and the things that we're more aware of about him. But, you know, this section is where the book took on, I think, a little bit more of that character that you're talking about, about the celebrity memoir, where you're just like, oh, here's Diane Keaton and here's John Frankenheimer and here's a party at Sue Menger's house. And, oh, these are all these like kind of recognizable touch points. This is the gossipy, like when they tell you to skip the first hundred pages of the of the celebrity memoir because you don't care about their life in Oklahoma for the first 20 years, this is kind of what they're talking about in, the, in, in act two. Yeah, that's true. And he names names and he was obviously in a lot of rooms and there is some subtle score settling going on. You can tell who he likes and who he doesn't like and who he'll tell uh, flattering stories of and who he just honestly wants to throw under the bus. There's also a great moment, and I don't know whether it starts in this section, I think it does, where he starts quoting another book about him. (laughs) <laughs> which is an amazing, amazing structural choice. Um, so he is, he, but I point that out to say that he is clearly aware of how he's telling the story and he's making structural choices and he is building Oliver Stone, the character. You mentioned the interview in the New York Times Magazine with David Marchese, where um, the first question is about the book and Oliver Stone answers um, in the third person. He's talking about the character Oliver Stone in the book as a person other than himself, which again is maybe pretentious, but is also just maybe like someone's thinking about storytelling, which is usually a, you know, a word that is used to describe things that aren't storytelling. But in this case, my guy does know how to tell a story. Also, you know, if you're a listener of the rewatchables, you know, there's a category called half-assed internet research. And this is the kind of book that creates a lot of half-assed internet research. I, I learned a lot of things that I didn't know about say about what the original incarnation of certain films 
could have been or would have been. You know, for example, Platoon was a movie that, you know, Stone had written in 76. The famed producer Martin Bregman, former manager of Al Pacino, got his hands on the script. And that kind of jet streamed Stone into a lot of meetings and a lot of rooms. And there could have been a version of Platoon in the mid-70s that starred Al Pacino. And that would have been a very different story for Oliver Stone. And would he have been the director? Probably not. Would it have been a Sidney Lumet movie or a Fred Zinneman movie? These are the kind of things that pop up. And then later on, we learned that there was a, a version of Born on the Fourth of July, which also might have starred Al Pacino, despite the fact that he was in his <laughs> mid-30s. Um, and that's a, another fascinating say, what if. Every movie could have starred Al Pacino at some point, is my understanding of reading this book. <laughs> yes. And, and like you say, some people get stray shots. You know, William Friedkin does not come out of this looking great because William Friedkin passed on the opportunity to make Platoon and instead, I think, took on The Brink's Job, which was a movie that was not successful. And, you know, Stone has a dagger for for Friedkin. So these are like all reasons to read the book. Like if you care at all about Hollywood history, if you care at all, especially about Hollywood in the 70s, there's a lot of really fun and and juicy stuff here. And then there is a, a lot of kind of depressing, paranoid stuff about his rise to fame. And it's a it's kind of a tried and true tale where you get a lot of money, you get access to drugs, you get access to a a certain class of person, perhaps a woman, if you're a man, and that refracts and distorts your perception of self. And it leads you into these crazy decisions. You know, one of the decisions he makes, which is so fascinating and so like unexplored, I think, about the stone myth is just the fact that he made a second movie after seizure called The Hand, which um, I also revisited last night and which is not very good. And This is well after he's already won an Oscar. This is well after he's already achieved a kind of incredible fame. It's a horror movie starring Michael Caine about a cartoonist who loses his hand and his his hand then haunts people and kills them, uh, acting as a kind of like disembodied id. And again, Oliver Stone, guy, even though he's got a lot of money, beautiful wife, Oscar on his mantle, is coping with some demons, coping with the idea of uh, physical violence. You know, I'm, I'm sure he saw his fair share of, you know, severed appendages in, during his time in Vietnam. And he's like literalizing some of that pain to create these horror movies. He's just clearly not yet ready to be a great filmmaker. And so the book then spends essentially the final third analyzing his two great triumphs in 1986. There's plenty of time spent on Scarface, which is entertaining and clearly a frustrating experience for him. And there's some time spent on some other films that he made. Um, Year of the Dragon for Michael Cimino and um, Eight Million Ways to Die and some of his writing projects. But really, the book turns on Salvador and Platoon, which I think makes him, I I don't know, I'm I'm sure I'm going to get this wrong, but he's the only person I could think of who was nominated for Best Original Screenplay twice in the same year. Can Can you think of any other person who had that that honor, there must be someone over the years. Yeah, presumably, but probably like decades ago, because it seems you know, it happens a lot with actors, but that's just a little bit more because of when projects are released. And it, you know, happened in directors with Soderbergh, I think, in 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 2000. But it's the screenwriters are always just fighting to get anything made. So it's really hard to have two at once. Exactly. I mean, that's that was exactly what I was thinking. And it's clearly, you know, it's a manifestation of two projects that he'd been working on for a very long time, finally both getting the green light in 86 or 85, I suppose, and then making them in 86. And they're they're kissing cousins, these two movies. You know, they they set a template for the kinds of work that he's going to do. And, and we'll talk about them a little bit more when we get into the game. But 
like let's just put stone in context here as a, as a filmmaker before we get into the game okay okay 12 academy award nominations in his career he has four oscars he also has two best director oscars there's a very short list of people who have two best director oscars he got them both within the span of four years that's just that's pretty crazy and and now i think is very overlooked when we talk about him because of some of that you know the the political energy that exists around him um well, I think it's essential to understanding everything that comes after because he is so quickly goes from all of the the trials and tribulations and self-perceived failures that he outlines in the this part of the book to winning two best director Oscars in the span of 4 years and he's entirely accepted by Hollywood and the establishment. And like once you are completely validated then your mind starts going in other directions and that's how you get JFK and that's how you get the Oliver Stone of the 90s. I think that's exactly right. There seems to be an act of defiance going on in the second third of his career where he's trying to take that, I don't know, that um, just the kind of like comfort and ease with which we talk about people who have achieved a great deal and trying to like trying to explode that too. He's always trying to blow something up and it seems like he's trying to blow up that respectability. So, you know, his films have garnered 42 nominations and 12 wins over the years. This is one of the most celebrated filmmakers of the last 50 years. As a writer, as we said, it's pretty clear what his influences are. You know, Greek mythology, Moby Dick. He literally quotes George Orwell in, in this book. He's very cynical, but very romantic. He's postmodernist, but he's also a total classicist. Like he's trying to have his cake and eat it too throughout his whole career, which makes for, I think, fun art to, to disentangle. You know, it, this is not... Um, this is not Fast and Furious 5. You know what I mean? Like, I like Fast 5 just fine. There's no, there's no there's no undertext in Fast 5. Yeah, but sometimes there's not a ton of undertext in Oliver Stone movies. I don't think that Fast 5 is the worst comparison in terms of bombast and, uh, you know, cramming everything in to a film that it, he's working on a very grand scale always in ideas and in execution. That's a good point. You're right. In some ways, there's very little that is unsaid in his work. And so that's... That's that's he's cap- you know Captain Obvious. Yes, sometimes that works really well. I think in, in the case of JFK, it's actually great that he just says everything that ever occurred to him about the JFK assassination. In other cases, not so much. But we'll get to that. Um, as I said, the filmmaking style is pretty important. He basically has two different phases of his work as a filmmaker. The first is the, those sort of Salvador and Platoon films, which are very grounded. They're almost like they're almost documentary like in the way that they're shot They're But they're still, you know, still dramatic, still kind of that spiritual moment where Willem Dafoe falls to his knees as his character is dying as the helicopter pulls away. But for the most part, he's trying to capture something very earnest and straightforward and right in the character's face. And then there's that second phase, which sort of mutates as we get into the early 90s. That is this fast cutting, you know, multiple film stock, hallucinatory, impressionistic media saturated overeager hazy portrayal of you know the way that influences kind of poison our brains and i i still don't totally know if oliver stone invented that psychology and then made me think that that was all true or if he was reflecting on something that was real you know do you know what i'm saying like did he invent that commercial style or was he trying to manifest something that he was seeing in the world 
I've always thought it was a little bit the latter, but that's because I think I came to that era of Oliver Stone at the same time that I came to pop culture itself. So it's very hard for me to separate, you know, what I saw on MTV versus what I saw in a, a Oliver Stone film. I just kind of all blends together as as stuff I got to catch up on. Um, and, 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 you know, and how you receive it does affect how it's effectiveness for you as well, which I am, I'm sure we'll talk about. There's one movie in particular that I know we're going to talk about. So, yeah, I I think if you look at the subjects that he focuses on that approach, that explosive impressionistic approach makes a lot of sense, you know, Vietnam and Kennedy and rock and roll and drugs and identity and love. These are all things that are actually in some ways best understood not in linear fashion because too frequently if they're understood in linear fashion then it's they're they're explained too simply and i think he puts some, some he can cloud the, the the certitude of some of his ideas by throwing a lot of things at you all at once some sometimes that works sometimes it's 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 what you're saying it's sort of making things too obvious and that's part of what makes him so interesting the the glue of this this second stage approach is definitely robert richardson who was shot most of his kind of masterpieces, most of his best liked and or best loved films, 11 of his features uh, were done with Richardson. And then Richardson went on to become, you know, one of the four or five most celebrated cinematographers of his era, he teamed up with Scorsese, Tarantino, Errol Morris, all since working with Stone. Notably has not really worked with Oliver Stone in about 15, 25 years. And that can tell you a little bit about where Stone's career has gone too. I think that they miss each other. Um, and Hank Corwin is the editor who was a commercial editor who helped develop that editing style with Stone and Richardson that I think, you know, when I think of Hank Corwin, I think of Natural Born Killers. And he's been in the news in the last few years because of the big short and Vice, but he really built that style with Stone 25 years ago. And so those two guys, along with, you know, Bruno Rubeo and a bunch of other people, you know, um, the casting directors who found a lot of the Stone players over the years, they built that mythology, that first 10 years of significant work for him from 86 to 96 that I suspect we'll spend most of our time on. And I guess the last thing just to talk about is what you opened with, which is that people think Oliver Stone is a conspiracy theorist. So do do you think he actually is a conspiracy theorist or do you think he is trying to upbraid and unnerve conventional wisdom? I think at some point, he has turned into a bit of an actual conspiracy theorist. At so, you know, the reason I answered the way that I did because it was, is because he was good at branding and this idea of Oliver Stone and what to expect from his movies and from his interviews and kind of the world of Oliver Stone was like extremely well communicated to me. And it, it's how I understand. And I think as we've talked about when we talked previously about JFK and I'm sure we'll talk about it some more, but I, how we all learned to look at like actual film and things like the, you know, the Zapruder tape and what we ask questions of and, and how we communicate um, skepticism and conspiracy. Like, I guess our entire generation learned that from JFK. So I give him a lot of credit for that. I think it is possibly more uh, knowing and intentional in JFK than it is in perhaps the documentary that he says that he is releasing a follow-up to JFK. Again, I refer you to the New York Times inter- New York Times Magazine interview with David Marchese where he is um, asked about this project and he explains all of the things that have since been revealed that will be in his documentary. And it's very hard not to take that as an actual conspiracy theorist. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think the other significant complication around this is the documentary work he's done spotlighting the leftist leaders of the world. And he spent a significant amount of time on camera and off with Vladimir Putin, Fidel Castro, Yasser Arafat, Hugo Chavez. He has put these people who many people believe are very evil and destructive figures in world history, and he's put them in a very positive light. Stone is very sympathetic to their causes, and he is has been accused of being a bit um, soft on people, particularly Putin, who you know many people obviously believe is a strong man and a very dangerous figure. And I, I perhaps this is my kind of like simple-minded wish wish casting, but I would love to know what we would think of Oliver Stone if he just hadn't made any of these documentaries, if he just had not done any of this work over the years, because they're inextricable now. The fact that he made two documentaries about Fidel Castro, the fact that he made, a, a I thought, a very not good uh, documentary about Hugo Chavez and the revolution in Venezuela and how that affected South America, just like a very credulous portrayal of a person who is immensely complicated and who is not challenged in the movie. I think that would be, it would be fascinating to look at these 20 feature films he made and just look at those films as like the text of Oliver Stone's life. But I don't think, I think they're inextricable now. And that's, it's, it's, it certainly complicates him. I do also think that the culture is just caught up to Oliver Stone and, and technologically and politically and psychologically, we're a lot more familiar with, um, the type of thought that he is uh, presenting in those documentaries. And it seems like, you know, what we see on YouTube is in a lot of ways like an evolution of what started 20 years ago. Now, can you hold him responsible for that? I I think no. I, we're going to talk a lot about like the reactions to his films and other people's interpretations of his art. And I don't think that you can hold someone entirely responsible for that. But at the same time, Oliver Stone is very aware of his own meta narrative and he is very aware of the politics and it, and is very aware of the media and, and schools of thought. And so I don't totally know how to untangle all of it because he is actively engaged in the work of his own influence. And some of those daddy issues that we mentioned, I think, crop up so specifically in all of his work, documentary and otherwise. He's seeking this kind of political father figure. He obviously has this incredible adulation for John F. Kennedy. He's talked recently a lot about his the, 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 the literal hope he had in Barack Obama and how let down he felt by his administration. You know, he, he's talked about what a meaningful figure Castro was to him. And I, these are really complicated personal issues that he's bringing to deeply political and social issues that it makes him such a difficult person to sort out. You know, like you can, you can feel the psychology in play in the way that he is saying, gosh, I idolize JFK in the same way that he represents something my father could not be, or the way that I was disappointed by this version of uncle Sam. And you know, he's, he's so like, he's so bald faced in, in that stuff that it's, it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And again, that's where the real boomerism of it all comes into me, because at some point, and I'm only speaking for myself, but my reaction, I I do find myself hitting a wall against the like America daddy issues uh, just because like I understand that it is the like Vietnam is the defining 
moment of his life and he's working through that. And so I, I, you know, I don't mean to diminish it, but it's just also, I, as a millennial who was born, um, when I was, uh, I just can't understand believing in America and feeling as betrayed by America in the way that he did. He does still. And some of that is, is just because of his generation and his time. And, and he is still working through his experiences in the way that he was betrayed, but it does. I think we just all look at politics and the idea of America so differently. Okay. Before we get into our game, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by An American Pickle. An American Pickle stars Seth Rogen as Herschel Greenbaum, a 1920s American immigrant who was accidentally brined in a vat of pickles for 100 years, emerging in present-day New York City. Seth Rogen also plays Herschel's only surviving relative, his great-grandson Ben, a mild-mannered computer coder living in Brooklyn. From the producers of The Disaster Artist and 5050, An American Pickle tells the uniquely heartwarming story of two men from different generations who must learn the true meaning of family. Stream the new Max original in American Pickle, August 6th, only on HBO Max. Rated PG-13. Let's try to look at him a little bit differently. Should we, should we go through his movies? Okay, you're just going to read the whole list. Well, no, 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 no. I think, I think oh. what we should do is we'll, we'll set some ground rules for this game. Okay. So we've just had this sincere and deep conversation about one of the more provocative artists of the 20th century. I thought and we were pretty fair. I thought so too. I mean, li- li- I come to this as a, a big time fan of Oliver Stone's movies. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And um, I'm, I'm proud of the way that we've talked about his work and his, his book thus far. But we're going we're gonna to play a stupid game in order to organize our feelings about him a little bit more coherently. So fuck, Mary kill. Here's the deal. We're only going to focus on the feature films. So we're not going to focus on the work that he did as a screenwriter. As I said, that includes Midnight Express, Conan the Barbarian, Scarface, Year of the Dragon, 8 Million Ways to Die. And he does have a writing credit on Evita, which is a film that he desperately wanted to make and was not able to make. And it was eventually made in the mid 90s starring Madonna. Maybe one day we'll talk about Evita in depth on this podcast. Fun fact, I did see that film on a school trip. And um, I'm not sure what my teachers thought I needed to know about <laughs> Ava Perone, but they thought I needed to know something. Um, and we're also not going to talk about the documentaries. Uh, I think I'm not really a fan of most of the documentaries. Uh, I do think that the 12-part The Untold History of the United States, which you can watch on Netflix, is interesting. I think it's probably the most interesting documentary work he's done. It's this really kind of breathtaking, comprehensive look at America through the nuclear age, starting in the 40s, running all the way through George W. Bush. And, you know, there's that kind of picaresque Oliver Stone, like who could ever believe I'd be the one to tell this story feeling in, in the, in that series. But, um, everything else I find is pretty politically complicated and feels like agent provocateur stuff to me. You know, it feels like he's trying to draw people out and get them to embarrass themselves publicly by talking about some of this work, which is something that we have decided to do on this podcast, like fools. But so we'll just talk about the 20 movies. So. Amanda, you got three fucks, three marries, and three kills. And I got three, Mm -hmm. three, and three of the same. So let's just go through each movie one at a time. And you can tell us if you decided to fuck, marry, or kill it. Or none of the above. Okay. Okay. This is interesting because I didn't know that the screenwriting was off the table. So I have one free spot that I'm just going to have to award during the the run of play. So that'll just be interesting. Well, if you want to monologue about Evita for 20 minutes, feel free. (laughs) 
I do also have a very vivid memory of seeing a video, though I don't know whether it was a school trip or just my parents, like, home education. Anyway. Well, should we use this as an opportunity to talk quickly about Scarface? I assume Scarface is the film you were going to pick. Yeah, that was going to be one of my fucks, because what else are you going to do with Scarface? Yes, you 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 gotta fuck Scarface. Um, I, I, it's just not his movie, you know. I think, and I think if it was his movie, it would have been a very different movie. And he kind he 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 says as much, and and that seemed like a fascinating experience for him. Um, Oliver Stone talking about the people who really got Scarface, which is something that I've been reading for forty years, where he's like, you know, black and Latino and city inner city people understood this movie. Always kind of just gives me the chills a little bit. It always just feels like he's not the right person to be telling that story, even though he, in many ways he's right. And in many ways that this, the film was kind of saved and mythologized um, by, by hip hop and by a different kind of a culture than the sort of white safe Hollywood culture that it, it, it found its way into. But you know, it's an amazing movie. Like I, I love Scarface. It's just a complete mess. It's all over the place. It's De Palma at, at his Ur De Palma-ness and Stone throwing every pipe bomb he has in his in his bag into a screenplay. Well, that's I mean, and that's kind of why I think it is an, more of an Oliver Stone film than you're giving it credit for. It's just absolutely ridiculous and also so instantly memorable, especially like much of the dialogue. But I was just watching some clips before we do this. I can't not laugh when Al Pacino is like speaking in in this movie. It's Pelican I can't fly. believe this happened. I can't believe this happened, which is is honestly the truest Oliver Stone experience. Are you surprised that this movie hasn't been canceled yet because Pacino is playing a Cuban man? I had just assumed that I mean, you could cancel all of Oliver Stone's movies, I think. Yes, that's um, a good point. That's so, Oliver Stone in the time of cancel culture is fascinating. Fascinating. I mean, here we he's, are, he's, so. he's almost untouchable in a way because everything is contaminated. Yeah. Okay, so you're going to have to make another pick. You're going to have to mm-hmm. fuck another film, which this might be, is that a challenge for you? It, this was the last spot. This was the one I couldn't fill. I told you very confidently yesterday that I had eight of nine slots figured out. And the ninth one is, yeah, I don't totally know what to do, but I'll get there. I'll figure it out. Okay. So we're flying fast and free. So I okay. mentioned those the, the, the first two films that he made, 1974's Seizure and 1981's The Hand. I think it's safe to say that neither one of us are going to fuck, marry, or kill either of these movies, right? Correct. Um, it definitely seems like Oliver Stone needed to get fucked after making these movies because they're just really kind of sad and weird and paranoid, and he just shouldn't be making horror movies. He should be making the kinds of films that he would go on to make shortly thereafter. So the next films that we get are the 1986 duo of Salvador and Platoon. Do you have any laurels for either of those films? I do not. I, okay. I I wish them well. And and I have like a lot of respect f- for Platoon, sort of. Uh, no, I mean, I do, but there, it's a pass for me on both. Let's talk about Platoon quickly because I'm going to fuck Platoon, which is a complicated okay. emotion to have about a movie <laughs> as searing as Platoon. Um, I understand Platoon because of the way that it was, its, its myth was communicated to me, which is that this was the most real Vietnam movie that had ever been made. That was the way that it was delivered. And this movie comes after Apocalypse Now. It comes after Full Metal Jacket. It comes after a lot of these, you know, harrowing and 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 serious, but also kind of um, mythological approaches to to war films. And this was a, like I said, much more of a boots on the ground approach. Dale Die, the the um, 
was the advisor on this film. And he goes on to be an actor who appears in many of Stone's films. And he's the person who trained a lot of the actors to look like soldiers. And, you know, this book ends functionally with platoon winning best picture. That is like the summation. That is the like, ta-da of Oliver Stone and his story. And it's funny that he then goes on to literally 35 more years of crazy shit. The the, move, the book actually ends with him being like, it was so great that I won Best Picture because it would steal me for the wars to come. Like, <laughs> that's literally how it ends. To be continued, a.k.a. this podcast. Um, so I have a lot of admiration for Platoon. I think it, it is like so many war movies before it. It is not aging well necessarily because the way that we see war movies has has evolved a lot. But it's also, it's set the archetype in so many ways for the kind of war movies that we would come to see. And so it's one of those things where it, it deserves multiple points for setting the table for, you know, the next batch. And, you know, Casualties of War come shortly thereafter, Brian De Palma's Vietnam movie, and they have a lot in common. But this, you know, devil and angel devil and Jesus figures in the film too is a total literal design from stone, the Willem Dafoe character of Elias and the Tom Berenger character of Barnes, but they create just this like straightforward, uncomplicated, but beautiful metaphor for his tormented soul as he spends time in the jungle. And the movie is, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a perfect film. I don't think it's his best film. I don't think it's even his most kind of like searing and, um, excitable movie it's it's quite a solemn movie in many ways but it's undoubtedly the work of somebody who knows what they're doing and what they're talking about despite the fact that as he writes about in the book it seems like they had to beg borrow and steal just to get the thing finished and it seemed like it was a very difficult shoot and there was a lot of learning that he had to do on the fly while making it but you know it's 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 one of his signature movies it's a kind of traditional american four-star movie so i'm having sex with it yeah, I when I rewatched it, I was reminded just how much like my and I think our generation's like understanding of Vietnam is is shaped by this movie in a lot of ways. I, this it's just a we've moved past it, um, and you know our understanding and that uh, that American centered uh, version of a war movie is is just kind of not where we are. And so I think I'm also just maybe I'm thinking a little bit too much about the definitions of of fucking versus marrying versus killing something which we didn't like really talk about and like possibly for the sake of you know our any everyone should not really define how we're thinking about those in any great terms but i would say the platoon was kind of like a second tier mary for me and i just didn't get there so i think that that i have a case for flipping a mary and a fuck and this is the one that i may I, i could flip theoretically but we'll get there when we get there okay uh so 1987, after Platoon, after Best Picture, after Salvador, which we didn't really talk about, but, you know, is this kind of crazy adventure movie about a journalist who travels to El Salvador to expose the lies uh, of what the Americans are doing to support the right-wing parts of the party and and then the rebel rebel soldiers and the confusion there. It has an amazing James Woods performance. He was nominated for Best Actor. What about Pol Pot and Castro? Yeah. I don't know if they're better. All I know is to some campesino who can't read or write or feed his own family, has to watch his kid die of malnutrition. Do you think he gives a shit about Marxism or capitalism? It was that kind of crap thinking that lost us Vietnam, this guilt shit, you liberal assholes. What the hell do you think the KGB's doing, huh? Is that why you guys are here? Hmm? Some kind of post-Vietnam experience, like you need a rerun or something, you pour 
120 million bucks into this place, you turn it into a military zone, so what? So you can have chopper parades in the sky? You're blowing it's it a bit of a, like, it feels like it's still being made by somebody who doesn't totally know how to make a movie yet, but he pulls off all these crazy set pieces on the shoestring budget that it's definitely worth a watch, um, but it doesn't, doesn't register for me. 1987, Wall Street. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Definitely one of the archetypal Oliver Stone movies. Upon revisiting, I, I did not like it. Um, and in fact, I wanted to kill it. Um, I, Are I, you I thought, killing Wall Street? Yeah, yeah. That's insane. Wow. You don't know what a good fuck is then because the, I'm fucking <laughs> Wall Street, okay? Tell me like, more. Of, of course it's not that it's not good. And of course it's just like it creates Gordon Gecko, and then we all have to live in Oliver Stone's Wall Street world. It like thinks that it's commentary and it's mythologizing the, you know, the Wall Street big spending greed is good character that it's trying to critique. And part of that is because Michael Douglas gives an all-time performance. And part of that is because Oliver Stone is like working through his definition of what a great man is and what ambition is and what you should what you should admire and what you should revile both in men and in capitalism. And and also partly it's bad because you have the Charlie Sheen character in there who has to like go through his daddy issues and like make good at the end, which is like clearly a stand in for someone who we've been talking about a lot on this podcast and like adding on a moral lesson that you don't really need. But the Gordon Gecko of it all is all time in terms of creating a character and an image and uh, penetrating the culture, I think you have to give him credit for that, even if it gets away with him. In a lot of ways, that's the Oliver's own story. It got away from him. It's an interesting thing. I, I think you made my case very strongly when you said all the things before but, which is that it created a culture, un, perhaps unknowingly, perhaps not, that I think was pretty toxic. Maybe it didn't create it, but it, it, it cemented it. It cemented that Michael Milken you know, power broker, you know, pinstripe suit, suspended Superman figure that is obviously really gross. And Michael Douglas is amazing. There's no doubt about it. But this movie was really not that well received, was not a hit. And Douglas is the only person who got an Oscar nomination. And so even though it has this big reputation and it's considered a very big movie, it really wasn't. I think many people considered it kind of a letdown in the aftermath of Platoon, even though it did have there's an iconography to it that is still memorable, but God, Charlie Sheen is not good, not a good actor. And there is literally a scene in which he's standing on the sky roof of a skyscraper and screams into the night. Who am I? Like, it, could there be a more dumb shit representation of a person going through problems than literally asking themselves, who am I as they make decisions in life? Like there still seems to be like a little bit of a one-on-one thing in play. And he hasn't totally tapped into his essential stoneness. And I, I think I was just surprised by how how simple this movie was, how not deep it was. 
All totally fair. And then how you respond to that fact says a lot about other aspects of your life. Yeah. I, you know, we should also add it's one of the worst performances by a, a an actress in an Oliver Stone movie, which is saying something. I, I don't, Daryl Hannah, I don't know what's happening, but it's not good. I, no, it's not good. But I just kind of think in terms of like seizing the zeitgeist and like image and energy making and putting your finger on something with Gordon Gecko, you got to give credit to it, but not enough to marry it. So I get it. You love to sleep with stockbrokers noted. Um, 1988 talk radio. <laughs> I've chosen to marry the film talk radio. Did you get a chance to look at this before doing the show? No, I did not rewatch it. I, I think diseases. I've seen part of it, though. I will be honest. I don't think I've seen it in full. You're happiest when others are in pain. That's where I come in, isn't it? I'm here to lead you by the hand through the dark forest of your own hatred and anger and humiliation. I'm providing a public service. You're so scared. You're like a little child under the covers. You're afraid of the boogeyman, but you can't live without him. Your fear, your own lives have become your entertainment. Interesting film. Um, not exactly what I remembered seeing many years ago. I could probably make the case for flipping the fuck session with Platoon with a fuck session with talk radio and then marrying Platoon. It's debatable here. I was really taken with this movie, though, because something I wouldn't have picked up on when I saw it in the 90s was just how incredibly well made it is. And this to me is this kind of signals like Stone going to another stratosphere in part because this is arguably an even harder movie to make cinematic than Wall Street, Platoon, and Salvador, because the whole damn movie essentially takes place inside of a radio booth. It's just in a radio station, and it's just Eric Bogosian yelling into a microphone for about 80% of the film. And somehow, with Richardson, he manages to use all of these filmic tricks to make this movie completely riveting. So it's based on a Pulitzer Prize-nominated play that Bogosian put on at the Public Theater and later on Broadway, and... You know, Bogosian is, of course, this incredible monologist and playwright and is best known now probably as the guy who was trapped in the vestibule and at the end of Uncut Gems. Um, <laughs> but, you know, and, and also has been a villain in a lot of films and, and plays a very unlikable shock jock in Dallas, Texas in this movie. Gives a searing performance. But, and you know, I, I think the movie in many ways predicts the Ben Shapiro's and Joe Rogan's of the world, the kind of like intense, you know, deeply angry and sure that they understand the truths of the world kind of talking head figures that dominate so much of media now. And certainly the, the Bogosian character would fit in, in a Twitter world very well, very comfortably. And so it has a, the the script has a lot of foresight, but to me, it's much more a story about like basically a director figuring out how to make movies, not how to make stories that are essential to him. And like platoon is essential to him. Wall street he writes a little bit about his father's struggles with money at the end of his life and how, you know, the way that kind of um, stockbroker culture overtook New York and how that damaged his family. Like Wall Street's a very personal film. Talk radio, he didn't write it. Um, Bogosian wrote it. And he comes to it almost for hire because he had to wait a year for Tom Cruise to be available to make his next film. And so in this year, he takes the year and whatever in a 60-day shoot makes this really interesting movie. If you haven't seen Talk Radio, I would definitely recommend it. It's not a perfect film, but it is something that, I thought about a lot after seeing it, which is not always the case with, with all Oliver Stone films. So marrying talk radio, 
with maybe a maybe a maybe a, a side fuck session as well. Um, okay. I should hope so. And a nice marriage, but whatever. Yes. 1989, born on the 4th of July. Yes, you did! Yes, you did! And it's all falling apart! King Kennedy, Kent State! Hey, man. We almost fucking war! It's not my fault! Fucking communism won! It's all for nothing! It's not true, Ronnie! What do you know? What do you know? Yes, I'm marrying born on the 4th of July. I am too. I knew this is where we would meet. Um, yeah. Amazing film. Lie. I'm so glad I rewatched it. Uh, no God, probably his best film in my mind. No yeah, I think it's just, it is in a lot of ways the most obvious because it is the closest marriage of what Oliver Stone is is working through and the, and the themes and how he relates to the ideas of America and politics and, and Vietnam um, with, with the actual text. And so there is something, I you know, I hesitate to use the word honest because I don't mean that the others aren't honest, but it just, it feels unvarnished almost while also being just like a really big tent filmmaking and using all of the American iconography and, you know, the John Williams score. And it's Tom Cruise. It's, it's Tom Cruise playing on the idea of Tom Cruise as a movie star and, you know, the American matinee idol, um, in, in 1989. So it's, I, I do th- kind of think it's kind of his most well-rounded work, if that makes any sense. And and that's what I'm looking for in a marriage. Oh, that's a nice way of thinking about things. I mean, I think of when I think about the marry concept of this game, I think about what's the thing that I, I want to spend the most time with. And mm-hmm. Ron Kovic's story is powerful to me for very obvious reasons, which is that Ron Kovic is a, brown-haired, idealistic kid from Long Island. And when I was growing up, I went to Walletman High School in Huntington. And Ron Kovic was friends with many of the people who taught me in high school. And so Ron Kovic was a name you would hear all the time. He's like a Long Island legend in many ways. And he's known as this incredible um, anti-war activist, obviously, now in the latter stages of his life. But just to provide some context for that, I think the film does an amazing job of capturing what Long Island is like, which is to say it is not really the home of a lot of anti-war activists. And for him to be a figure who emerged from that and went through the trials that he went through, you know, losing the use of his legs and um, encountering like his own incredible frustrations and PTSD and the problems inside of his family. Like it's pat to say that it hit home, but it hit, this is like a movie that hits home so hard for me. And Kovic is just like American hero in both of the ways that we like to use that phrase. He is the person who gave his life and his body for his country. And he is also the person who, um, you know, sacrificed his freedom to say the things that he felt were true and stone, not being Ron Kovic. I think makes him the best person to make the movie. You know, Platoon is so personal and so specifically about Stone. And I think that that people glommed onto that and they romanticized it when they were celebrating him for the film. But him having just a little bit of critical distance while also knowing how to tell a Vietnam story and then a story about this guy who lived a slightly different life than he did. I think it just makes, it's the perfect marriage. And as you said, Cruz, this is like, is this is the best Cruz has ever been in my mind. I mean, at least in terms of the kind of, um, you know, the serious awards worthy work that he's done over the years. I, it's it's nuts to me that he didn't win. I mean, I, I get he lost to Daniel Day Lewis for my left foot, a similarly, you know, body sacrificing kind of performance. And it's fascinating that they were up against each other at this time. But man, this is just one hell of a movie. I really, really like it. I was 
so happy to, after watching a lot of like mediocre Oliver Stone movies, this was the last one I rewatched and I was really happy to be with it. So we're both marrying Born on the Fourth of July from 1989. Uh, I suspect we both have strong feelings about the next film, which is (laughs) 1991's The Doors. You're all a bunch of fucking slaves! How long do you think it's going to last? How long are you going to let them push you around? I tell you this, I'm going to get my kicks before the whole shithouse goes up in flames, all right? So we're in the sweet spot. We're in the... We're in prime time for Stone now. He's he's just won his second best director at Oscar for Born on the Fourth of July. He is one of the cel- most celebrated filmmakers of his generation. Maybe in his mind, ten years too late, but it's all happening for him. He is at the center of movie culture, and what he has to say about American life matters more than almost anybody. And he decides to make a movie about the Doors. <laughs> do you like the, do you like do you like the band The Doors, Amanda? No. No, I, like, come on. I was born in the 80s. I don't care about this shit. This is this is peak boomer, which is why I'm obviously going to kill it. In addition to being not good, I rewatched part of uh, The Doors yesterday afternoon and then had to have a meeting with our coworker, Mallory Rubin. And she was like, how are you? And I was like, I'm in a really bad mood because I just watched part of The Doors. But I, no. We, I, with all respect to Jim Morrison, and I know the lyrics to a couple of the songs, but um, I, why, why is this the myth that we're making? Such an interesting choice for him because it, I think it speaks to some of that earnestness that aided a movie like Born on the Fourth of July and really hurts a movie like The Doors because he takes so much of the Jim Morrison mythology at face value and so much of that kind of that the poetry of the of the wounded man at such face value, and it, it really hurts the movie because. The Doors at their best, and they were not frequently at their best, but at their best, I thought were like a pretty, f- they were a pretty fun blues band. I, 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 I you know, I, I used to be a rock critic. And when I was a rock critic, The Doors were the number one punching bag of that generation. They were the band that no one respected because Morrison's lyrics were so dumb and his melodies were so thin and weak. And the band had this, you know, Ray Manzarek's like goofy organ was a part of all of these songs that didn't really belong. But I always thought Robbie Krieger was a great blues guitarist and John Densmore was a jazz drummer. And so you took a blues guitarist and a jazz drummer and this guy with this deep, deep baritone voice and he sang really good white blues songs. This movie is like not interested in that at all. This movie is interested in witchcraft and Morrison as like a fuck god and the broken dream of the 1960s, which is that boomer exceptionalism that you're talking about. And while I think Val Kilmer is like maybe the closest any person will ever come to becoming another person for a movie, because he literally looks, sounds, and acts exactly as we imagine Jim Morrison did, the movie is just so listless and pointless and self-serious and not good. And it's such a bummer. Like, I, I did the same thing when I rewatched it this week. I rewatched it, I got to the end of it, and I was like, God damn, this is bad. Like, I, yeah. I, I can't believe how bad it is. I do love the one sequence. I do love the, I don't know if you had got, you got to this point in the movie, but, you know, when the meltdown happens, when Morrison kind of burns it all to the ground in Miami at this, at this infamous concert that they gave, um, Stone does do some kind of interesting, like, 
presaging the natural born killers manic style of filmmaking but for the most part it's a pretty it's a really tough watch and it has not it's the movie that's probably aged the least well because i think we're totally out now generationally on romanticizing rock stars of the 1960s like this wouldn't you agree I mean, I was never in on it, but yes, like I, <laughs> there's just, it, there is just like a real, okay, dad, like, please stop talking to, to every aspect of deciding to do this and making this movie and then having to talk about it with, with all respect to my father, who's also a boomer and who I love very much. Uh, I don't know if he likes the doors. I, I hope not. Um, are you killing this? I'm killing it. Oh, good. Okay, great. So okay. right now let's just let's just do a quick tally because we're going through the heart of his filmography. This is really the yeah. this is the key era. So I am mm-hmm. fucking platoon, killing Wall Street, marrying talk radio, marrying born on the 4th of July and killing the doors. Okay. And so far I am fucking Wall Street, marrying born on the 4th of July and killing the doors. Okay. So you've got quite a few left which is exciting which gives us a lot to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Next film, 1991. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. You've heard about it before. Is that why? Well, that's a real question, isn't it? It's a little why? movie called JFK. How and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the mafia. Keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game. Prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Goddamn brilliant, immensely watchable masterpiece from Oliver Stone. I am, of course, marrying it. What are you doing? I am also marrying it. Yes. Because so, we have to marry the best. We have to marry the, the truest versions of the other person. Kids, if you're contemplating marriage, marry. make sure you know who you're marrying and also marry the essence of that person, which in for Oliver Stone is JFK. Couldn't have said it better. This is an immensely long film, just like Marriage. It's a immensely <laughs> complex and a oftentimes film. confounding film, just like Marriage. Yeah, uh, It is a film that is quite sure it knows what it's doing, even when it does not, just like Marriage. And it's kind of beautiful in its own fucked up way, just like Marriage. I, I really think that, you know, I think you and I probably talked about this every once every six months for the last two years we've been doing this show. It's just a... It's a totemic movie for me, but um, it does signify, like you say, not just philosophically and creatively what Stone's about, but even though Born on the Fourth of July, I think, is the most coherent filmmaking he's ever done and the clearest, straightest, truest line he's ever drawn, JFK is just so fucking fun. It's just so fun to watch. It's just so crazy. It's just, it, it, is, it is really where he cements that, that style that I was talking about, that crazy impressionistic style where he's capturing all of his archival footage and mixing in film stocks and just showing you things that he shouldn't be showing you. And, and frankly, like lying in places, making things up in an effort <laughs> to tell this, this ostensibly true story. I mean, there are so many composite characters. There are so many twists of the truth to, t- to make a compelling case, but he, it's convincing. It's a really convincing piece of work. And it also has not one, but two really iconic scenes that or not just iconic scenes in like movie history, but I think formulate the way people understand schools of thought and, 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 and politics and, and ideas. And that of course is the, the Donald Sutherland extended scene and then the, the bullet at the end. And it went this way and the other way. 
you know, it's memes before there were memes and also hunt like 60 minute YouTube videos parsing one second of video before YouTube existed. Yeah, I mean, for a guy who loves Greek mythology, this is like his Helen of Troy. This is the this is the film that launched a thousand subreddits. You know, it's really mm-hmm. he is the the mocker of of this kind of thinking that is so prevalent in 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 American internet culture. You know, like he really is like a granddaddy figure of this stuff. And while I think a lot of that stuff is toxic and fucking weird, um, it's not surprising that it was an inspirational for so many people living quietly alone in their basement because it is, it's just, um, it's enrapturing. And uh, we're both marrying JFK. 1993, Heaven and Earth. Uh, I got, I got nothing for this movie. I was, I was likewise. I, yeah, likewise. I, I, I found it dull. Um, it's, it's, it, I mentioned this to you last night when we were talking, but this actually just feels like Oliver Stone trying to tell a story a bit more conventionally. And mm-hmm. maybe, the, maybe this is a chance to talk about his relationship to female characters, which is not terribly strong throughout his career, because this is a story that is um, favors the female lead much more than most of his stories do. And um, while it is, you know, at times, I think a very sympathetic portrait of a woman who went through incredible struggle during the war, it is really bland. And he just does not have a feel for how to write a character like this. And he just does not. It seems like he just does not have a strong feel for writing female characters in general. Yeah, I just sense a disinterest. And you can sense that in the book. And you can definitely sense it in the work where um, there are not very many female characters. They're usually afterthoughts. They're almost always miscast, which just signals to me a fundamental misunderstanding either of what he's writing or, you know, what he thinks he thinks of women versus what he actually thinks of women when he's um when he's casting i i don't want to hold i think it's boring to go through a director's list of of works and be like you didn't make enough movies about women i i i just i don't think that that is ultimately productive even though i would like to see more movies about women and what i would really like is to see more movies by women um because at the end of the day, if you're not interested in something, then I don't want you making an, a, an entire movie about it. But yeah, I agree with you. I, and, and some of it is also, I think, again, he is just working through what happened to him in Vietnam and his relationship to all those men in Vietnam in so much of his work and his life and, and when women were not there. So for me, it's more it's it's tunnel vision, though I have to say just a number of tremendously sexist asides in the book, which, you know, what, what are you going to do? Yeah, I underlined a few of the tougher hangs. There are some tough hangs. Mm-hmm. And if you're triggered by that, I would say avoid chasing the light. Um, Heaven and Earth is the final film in his triptych of Vietnam stories after Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July. And it's interesting. It's very staid. And it was received a bit stiffly. I don't think people really cared for this much more measured approach, much more traditional approach to storytelling. So in 1994, he says, fuck it. And he makes one of the craziest movies of the last 30 years. That movie, of course, is Natural Born Killers. So tell me, Mickey, how can you look at an ordinary person, an innocent guy with kids, and then shoot him to death? I mean, how can you bring yourself to do that? Innocent? Who's innocent, Wayne? You innocent? I'm innocent. Yes, I am. Of murder, definitely. 
It's just murder, man. All God's creatures do it in some form or another. I mean, huh. you look in the forest. You got species killing other species, our species killing all species, including the forest, and we just call it industry, not murder. I'm very but interested to hear what you think about natural killers, because I don't think you and I have ever discussed it. What do you think I'm going to say about it? I I think you're going to fuck it. Oh, no, I'm definitely killing it. Oh. But, like, but, but... But born from probably the same place as fucking it, which, again, I think you and I are just, like, revealing too much about our sex lives. We should note that, again, we are millennials. We learned about sex in the 90s. They were teaching some very different things. Kids, go have a positive, consensual sex life, okay? But for for you and me, it's, you know, it's two sides of the same coin. I, but I'm not killing it for the reasons that you think I'm killing it. I'm like killing it. And I say this with a lot of love for you. Like I'm killing it because of what you're about to spend five minutes talking about. I'm killing it because of the shots. Like, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I understand that it invented a style of filmmaking that I kind of came to later and kind of thought was part of the world. I appreciate the technical aspects of it. I find it really irritating to watch. Like, I just don't enjoy watching it. I rewatched, again, part of it yesterday afternoon. That's why I was such in, a, in such a bad mood when I talked to Mallory. And I, I you know, I find the ideas outdated at best it's maybe they were incisive in 1994 though like i don't know the media did it even then i know sir thank you um so i just i don't have interest in talking about it and that's why i'm killing it i think that makes total sense i think um this is good sex at the end of a bad date is the way i think about this and sometimes you just have a carnal desire for something that you know is bad for you and natural born killers is very bad for people. And I agree with you that philosophically, intellectually, the movie is a little too basic for my taste. And I have always wanted to see the Quentin Tarantino version of this script. And obviously, you know, the film was the script was bought and Stone and two other writers rewrote it in their own image. And the idea that I the idea that Quentin Tarantino would blame the media for violence and culture is obviously that is not what was in the original script. There's just no way that that was in the original script. I don't know. I did not ask Quentin, but just based on his work in the subsequent years, you know, that's not the case. However, you're right. Formally, this is an amazing movie. This is an unbelievable thing. And it's forget about like analyzing the shots and talking about the film stock as I have just for me, the movie came out when I was 12 and I saw it when I was 13. I did not know you could do any of this stuff in a movie. It really, it, 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 it put a power saw around my skull and pulled my brain out and poked at all of the wrinkles and was like, did you know that you can put a, an evil sitcom as your, the origin story for a character? Did you know that you can put a laugh track in a movie? Did you know that you can have a completely digressive, um, docu-series hosted by Robert Downey Jr. in the middle of your movie. These are all things that when you're a kid are mind-blowing. They're just formally mind-blowing and they make you think about whatever meta text is. Now, at this stage of my life, you know, taking that hard left into 40, I'm not that impressed. You know, all of these, this media has been exploded over and over again. The internet has completely has made this film seem completely outmoded. I think the, the concepts of who is responsible for the violence in the world, like it even seems really simplistic for somebody like Stone. Um, but change, changed my way of thinking about movies as a teenager. And it features like an all time Woody Harrelson performance, just an amazing performance as Mickey. I like Juliette Lewis in the movie. I think she's a little bit cartoonish, 
but I, I think what Woody Harrelson's doing is is like movie icon work. It's the sort of stuff that like makes you a legend as a movie star. So I am having sex with this movie. Yeah, that's I I get that makes sense. I'm just glad you're not marrying it. That would just be a long life to live. No, in fact, I've already married three of his films, so I'm fresh out of I'm fresh out of marriages. What I've got oh, left have is you? what one did you marry? One you kill. Married JFK, born on the 4th of July, and talk radio. Three years in and out. Oh, wow. Okay. That also says a lot. Okay, keep going. 1995, Nixon. I, I don't really have anything on this. I have nothing on it either. Uh, I did not rewatch it. I've seen it a couple of times. It's a very, very long film. And I think a bit overwrought. I think he, I think Stone attempted to shoot the moon again. And it's a it's an important movie in the history of his career because it, it essentially sets him off course. It sets him off the political course. It sets him off the boomer course in many ways for a long stretch. This is really the last movie of its kind in that 10-year period where Oliver Stone was one of the two or three most important filmmakers in America. But while it does have a great Anthony Hopkins performance at the center of it, I, I find it to be not a very effective movie. And also a little bit like, um, you know, a little bit like, telling a man that he needs to procreate you know like that's instinctual like we we know in our american dna that nixon was paranoid and evil you know we don't need a three and a half hour movie that explains it to us in 1995 you know what i mean i mean i agree with you and you know maybe oliver stone needed that because this is just how he's like making sense of of his life but i i don't need it 1997 u-turn you know, I, I don't think you know who I am. The name's Toby N. Tucker. People around here call me TNT. You know why? Um, they're not very imaginative. Because I'm just like Dynamite Boy, and when I go off, somebody gets hurt. Fine. I was trying to make time with your girl, you're right. And now I'm terrified, and I've learned my lesson, and you can go away. Do you have anything for this movie? Stand up. I don't. I am. Uh, I'm fucking Stand this movie. Up, wow. You're just, I, you're, I was going to say something. I was going to say something really inappropriate that, again, is really outdated in terms of just giving it up pretty quickly. And once again, kids, just go out and have safe sex with whoever you want. No judgment. But you are moving quickly, Sean. You're making some good points, which is that you and I are we're we're border kids. We're on the border between Gen X and millennial. You're a little closer not, to millennial than I am. I'm not a Gen X. I'm not Gen X. And I'm I'm not I, that's not even about when I was born, but just ideologically. I I completely missed the boat on it. Do you think so? I'm I'm not so sure. Don't you think though that all of my reactions and just in terms of the culture I consumed, what was important to me and how I come to it, I feel like I'm always the millennial in the room. And I deal with Gen Xers or Gen X influenced people like you and my husband and obviously Chris Ryan, who is my favorite old timey Gen X person in my life. Well, I think that you have a lot of the cynicism of a Gen Xer and not a ton of the ceaseless ambition of a millennial. So I think of you in our cohort. But okay. it, it, it's, it, this, it, this is notable, I think, in, in having a conversation about these movies because, you know, U-Turn is the ultimate Gen X movie. It is a movie about a guy, you know, after, you know, breaking his back for 20 years to make these profoundly important films about the American character just makes this really seedy neo-noir based on a John Ridley novel 
full of movie stars, just absolutely teeming with incredible actors. You know, star Sean Penn, Jennifer Lopez, you know, right before Out of Sight when she is just at her maximum powers, Nick Nolte, Billy Bob Thornton, Claire Danes, Joaquin Phoenix on a thousand, John Voight doing some just absolutely absurd shit as a Native American. Um, Really just a wild movie and a very fun movie and a real like, let me just take the safety off kind of a movie to kind of cleanse himself. And it's really dirty and it's really quick by Oliver Stone standards. I think it's a sub two hour movie. And it's got also, I think I might've mentioned it on the show before, but it's like my favorite trailer of all time is this movie. This is the trailer that like haunted my dreams when I was a teenager. I would, I would, when, when we got the internet, I like downloaded the dot move version of this trailer and we just watch it over and over again, like a fucking weirdo. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm sleeping with you turn 1999, any given Sunday. I will be marrying any given Sunday. Speak on it. I'm not doing anything with it, which was a twist for me. Yeah, that is interesting. I, for me, it's, it's honestly the entertainment value. Like, and that's a little bit why I was like, I don't really think I'm the Gen X person. I'm, I'm the play the hits, you know, give me something that I am having fun doing and, and something a bit more mainstream. Um, I, obviously, it is extremely prescient in terms of all of the issues that the NFL has been working through for the last 20 years. And I don't even really watch the NFL and I know about all of that. So, and and I give Oliver Stone credit. That's when his skepticism and his kind of like, what is the truth and are we being lied to actually, you know, pays real dividends. I think there, there are great performances with the exception of um, one Cameron Diaz, who once again, just... I, I don't understand that character. Like, and, and it's, and it's so funny because I believe it's in the oral history that we had on the ringer last year for the 20th anniversary. He was, Oliver Stone was asked about the character and he's just like, you know, it seemed like in the air, there could be a female owner coming sometime soon. So it was almost like it was his version of feminism to be like, now I will give the team a female owner. And I'm just like, sir, I I don't really know what you think is going on with women in America in 1999 or now. Um, but that's okay. I think that it's definitely too long, but also in terms of the way that it's filmed and the way it recreates football, I I guess that's how I, a person who doesn't watch football, think and understand a football now because I s- saw any given Sunday. I'm like, oh, it's like super violent and you're in the mix and you can hear the 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 crashing and the, it's, it's really visceral. And I, in that same oral history, a lot of people, including Apuccino, talk about how watching any given Sunday changed the way that they watch football. And I think for me, it probably just informed how I watch football when I do now watch it when my husband is being a nut. So I, I enjoy this movie. At the end of the day, I just I find it rewatchable. So I will marry it because I have to spend the rest of my life with it, theoretically, and also give it half my money. So Wow, that's a complicated way of thinking about your relationship to any given Sunday. Um, I, I'm with you. This was like a very borderline situation yeah. for me. If there weren't three movies that I loved more than it, it probably would have been a marriage for me for the same exact reason. I love to watch it too. I think it's immensely prescient. I think it's probably not actually a very honest representation of the violence inflicted in football. In fact, someone's eye is pulled from their skull in this film, and I've never seen that on a football field per se. But it's like all it's like all Oliver Stone movies. It's the opera version of real life. It's the over the top physical sensation and intellectual sensation that you get from the ideas of a thing. And he's he's the best at that. And football is was a 
big fat target for him and it's kind of perfect for him. I think the movie is like 30% of the movie doesn't work for me. I agree about um, Cameron Diaz's character. They're, they're, you know, she's not only the owner, she's the GM of that team. And then the NFL still does not have a female GM in its league. And it may not for a long time. It's an immensely sexist sport full of sexist organizations. And so, and I think the idea of making her like the young scion slash ball buster is a bit complicated. Um, not ideal really, but on and, the other and, hand, God. And then she has to have like her own version of daddy issues without Pacino because there have to be daddy issues in every single movie. But it it makes it makes no sense. But it's just so funny to me because I, I got the impression that he thought that he was really developing like a really progressive female character. And it is just kind of a Frankenstein. It makes no sense. Well, it's that thing where older men think that the way to make a woman more complex is to give her traits that are typically defined as masculine. And that's not necessarily a sophisticated way of writing a female character. And he, you know, he falls prey to that sometimes. On the other hand, the male characters in this movie, the, the actors are giving some of their best performances. I mean, in, in terms of late period Al Pacino yelling phase, like this is as watchable as he's ever been. The speech is obviously iconic. The, yeah. you know, the, the inches speech. Um, I think, Jamie Foxx obviously emerges here in a way that he had not before. This is when people really started taking him seriously as a performer. His 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 character is also just it's a it's so cliche to say, but it's just such a predictor of where the league was going. I mean, it's so, Willie Beeman is the NFL now. If you look at what you know Lamar Jackson and and Patrick Mahomes are as players, um, Dennis Quaid basically just playing John Elway is is wonderful in this movie as like a broken down steroidal you know sunsetting middle-aged man uh reunited with james woods as an evil doctor love mm-hmm. him just being a complete shit heel up and down the cast it's really just a great collection of of actors and margaret getting a look love to see Anne margaret yeah. in the movie um but i'm not doing anything with it you're 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 marrying any given sunday are you okay. are you doing are you doing anything with um with alexander the 2004 film <laughs> no <laughs> So, I'm not, you know what? I didn't even bother revisiting it, but I do think I saw it in theaters. I, I saw it in theaters as well. I have also seen the ultimate cut. Are, are you familiar with the kind of the backstory, how this is sort of the Blade Runner of our generation, this movie? No. Okay, so obviously Alexander is, it, it comes five full years after any given Sunday. In this time, Oliver Stone has started making some of these documentaries that we were talking about. He's gotten a little bit more politically active as a documentary filmmaker. He takes a long stretch off, the longest stretch by far he's taken since 1986 from feature films. He comes back with his grand epic, Alexander, starring Colin Farrell. The movie tested poorly. It was not a box office success. It was a very difficult shoot, and they shot a lot of film. A lot of film. I think when it was released, I think it was in the neighborhood of two hours and 40 minutes. It was long at the time. I think that the ultimate cut is in the neighborhood of three and a half hours. It's one of the longest director's cuts ever. It's up there with Kingdom of Heaven and some of the Blade Runner controversies. But, and I haven't seen it in a while, but the people who like it love it. They swear by it. They swear that it is the epic of the 21st century. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Um, I'm going to rewatch it, I think, just because I spent all this time rewatching all these other movies and reading this book and going through his entire career. But I just remember not really liking it at all the first time I saw it and kind of feeling a bit confused as to why Oliver Stone made this movie. But re- after reading the book, it does make sense that he clearly is, he's taken with these stories, with these great men that you're describing. The, the classical, yeah. 
Nothing for Alexander. 2006 World Trade Center. Got anything for it? I do not. I don't either. I think this is probably like his least successful film to me. It's not offensive in any way. It's actually because it's played so down the middle and because it is not the the well of conspiracy that we expect from him, I'm weirdly holding that against it. And that's what that's the paradox of being Oliver Stone. If you don't bring mm-hmm. the crazy to the movie, somehow we're not as interested in your movie, which is that's got to be tough for him. 2008 brings a movie called W. It, it's important that we meet that deadline. All right. The only way we can win um, is to leave before the job is done. Yeah. I'll, I'll now take questions. Mr. President. Well, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, it's a great setup that you just did and um, about not bringing the crazy. I will be killing W. I will as well. W should be killed. Yeah. This good. is not, not a good film. This is a bizarrely sympathetic portrait of a bad person um, who, who wrought havoc. Yeah. So here's the thing is that it's like, it's not a bad film. It's really traditional. It's them. It's everyone doing SNL Bush administration with hints of The Daily Show. And I believe Rob Corddry is like actually in W. And it is a little bit funny. And Josh Brolin is amazing in this movie. I'm sorry. Or he, you know what? He's very good, but what he does, which is both a testament to his performance and like the problem of the movie, but and also the problem of George W. Bush, if you share our politics, is that uh, he brings the charisma in a in a really big way. And it's tricky because there are flashes in the movie of Oliver Stone understanding. I mean, he definitely understands that W is a buffoon and he understands that the larger administration is doing nefarious things. There's that um, that Dick Cheney speech in the the control room that is quite chilling. So you have to understand that he's like kind of working with the charisma and is like maybe trying to expose it. And it's a little bit of like the media did it or whatever. But it's the tricky thing with making movies about these really charismatic people because we're conditioned to watch a movie and be like, oh, what a charismatic person. Now I now I am very charmed by them. And then you add on all the dad stuff. And I just, you know, it's it's disrespectful to the entire world that we just all have to live in this world because George W. Bush like couldn't really work out his relationship with his dad. I I, I don't think that that is that is fair to to anyone. I don't want to live in that world. So I'm killing it. It's a confusing piece of art in so many ways. I just listened to an interview with with Stone recently in which he said that there is no doubt about it that George W. Bush was a worse and more dangerous president than Donald Trump and that that is what he believes. Hard to believe that by watching this film. That really is not my takeaway from the movie. I agree with you. It is definitely a buffoonish portrayal of adultish guy who kind of, you know, uh, woke up on third base and thought he hit a triple. But it's not. it does not have the, like, searing anger or satire that you would expect from a movie like this. In fact, it's like, it's certainly a film about a guy seeking his father's approval. And it's a story about a guy who really loves his wife and whose wife saved his life. And that's just a weird choice for Oliver Stone. I'll never figure out why he made this movie. And a guy who also really likes baseball. I was thinking a lot. I have a vivid memory of seeing this movie and I'll, I'll tell you why I saw this movie on opening weekend, the union square theater in New York. And I sat directly behind Anna Winter. 
in a crowded, in like a packed theater. And number one, that that's kind of all you need to know. But I, I was trying to reflect on the fact that in 2008, and I believe it was the fall of 2008 when this movie is released. So it's, we're kind of in the, the, uh, the Obama is coming throws and there's a lot of excitement and Bush is a reviled character was at least among some circles pretty established. So I was like, did Oliver Stone think at the time in 2008, he was making like a slightly radical, different take on the established narrative around this person is, and is that why he did it? I don't think there's a justification for it, but that was my best guess at to how it happened is that we've kind of, we've gone back and forth or not we, but some people have gone back and forth on W a couple of times at this point. And this movie is just from a different phase. Well, I think it goes back to that sort of that wheel of political thought that I was describing where sometimes you can, you can think a little bit too hard about where you stand on something and somehow end up on the wrong side of what you think about it. And also, you know, Stone is a, he's a zagger. He's when everybody else is zigging, he's zagging. And, and, it feels like he zagged too hard. I, I find this to be a really, really confusing movie from him. Not because we needed a movie that told us that George W. Bush was a was a very bad president. I, I people understood that in, at, at the time. You know, his for some people, his memory has softened over time because of this Donald Trump period that we've been living through. But it let me assure anybody who was not paying close attention in 2008, we were quite sure that George W. Bush did a very bad job across two two terms and. So the whole project is very odd and, and, you know, this is kind of, this is where things clearly start to wane for him. Um, and he starts to, he becomes a kind of unfavorable filmmaker after this movie. Cause I think people, I think the media in particular, I think critics really wanted, they wanted a, a sharp blade on this movie and it didn't have it. And world trade center was very conventional and did not have a sharp blade. And then all of a sudden it was like, who is Oliver Stone anymore? And then he makes two years later, a sequel to Wall Street, a movie that I killed earlier in this conversation called Money Never Sleeps, which is a great title. And I did choose this movie in the movie draft of 2010, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, it, it's okay. It's not, it's not, it's not a, it's a watchable movie. It's just not, um, it doesn't tell us much more than we all, than we didn't know already. Yeah. Here's my thing. I have two fucks left and there are three movies left and there's one I'm not picking. So I think I'm just like, I guess I do fuck stockbrokers now. And I'm also fucking Wall Street money never sleeps. Here we go. This let is me, let me say a couple things. You're I, fucking like, both Wall Street movies? I don't know. It just happened. What else am I supposed to fuck on this list? Wow. It just happened. I, I, okay. At least it has Shia. It's got uh-huh. Carrie Mulligan. It's yeah. got great bits about day trading that Chris Ryan will dine out on for the next five years. <laughs> So I don't, I don't know. I, I I don't know what else I was supposed to do here. I kind of forgot that I had that many fucks left, but here we are. You have no fucks to give because you've given them all to stockbrokers. Incredible showing by you. I have, I have one left that I'm about to give to another completely wild movie because I am giving it to Savages. Um, Uh, Savages, 2012 Savages is the next film. Yeah, Pretty fun movie. I have nothing to give it because I've run out of categories, but. Um, what's your, what's your memory of this? I remember wanting this to be a little bit more than it was. I just remember it being such a product of its time in such an electrifying way because the main stars are Blake Lively, 2012 Blake Lively, Taylor Kitsch, and Aaron Johnson Taylor. 
And then also you've got Salma Hayek just throwing heat in this movie. She is amazing. And I remember it being fun, in a, which is a really twisted thing to say about like a very dark movie about uh, drug cartels. So uh, fun is a relative term, but just in the sense of like Oliver Stone like had some energy and it, and was trying to make a really like deranged big top like why well we'll just try it movie i mean this literally this movie starts with Blake Lively whose character's name is Ophelia but she says just call me o and she narrates a lot of the movie and she is narrating like a pretty i don't know if it's that intense but like she and Taylor Kitsch are definitely fucking and it's just like close up on Taylor Kitsch's bare bottom. And then she's narrating and she says the line, I have orgasms. He has wargasms. So I, I at some I, point, <laughs> at some point, if you're going to go for it, you got to go for it. And and so here I am. I think that that is verbatim from the novel, which I have read by Don Winslow, that quote. Um which is, you know, this is a lurid maximalist crime story. It's very much in keeping with what he did uh, 15 years earlier with U-Turn, where he pivoted away from, you know, the the seriousness of Wall Street Money Never Sleeps and W to make something that is just kind of down and dirty and also is, you know, surreptitiously about the drug war and cartels and and the, the, the absurdity of the way that we um, wage violence across the border. And that's what a lot of Winslow's work is about. He's written great books about this power of the dog and the cartel. And um, they're an interesting match, you know, two hyper masculine humanists, which is just a, just a fascinating mix an unusual mix, really a Chris Ryan special. If ever there was one, those two, those two working together. Savages is pretty cool. I I think I just wanted more out of it. This was also in the heyday of Taylor Kitsch probably shouldn't be the star of movies like this. Like he is great for 30 minutes, but is he great for a hundred minutes? And Blake Lively um, is is alive, is a human. Um, I, I, I don't know if she's a great actor. Uh, she's she's not. She has not starred in as many movies uh, in recent years. I think because of stuff like this. But it's I I, I don't want to degrade your your desire. I'm just trying to have a little fun. You know, I'm not I'm not marrying it. Speaking of fun, or perhaps not, uh, Oliver Stone's final narrative feature was released four years ago, his 20th film. It's called Snowden. Don't remember this being a fun time at the movies. Did not revisit this movie. Obviously, it's understandable why it's an important film to Stone, the story of Edward Snowden as portrayed by Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the movie. But uh, he's talked at length about why he hasn't made a film since this, which it seems as though it was, one, very hard to raise money for it because of the subject matter, and two, very difficult to make. But... It's not a movie that I want to marry, fuck, or even kill. I'd rather just not watch it again. It's it's a no thanks for me. That's the 20 films. That's FMK for the Oliver Stone filmography. We walked through every phase. Do you have any regrets? Anything you'd like to take back? I don't think so. I probably could have thought a lot harder about the fuck category, but that would also kind of contradict the category. So I just, I I went with my instincts and that's the point, right? And those instincts took you straight to Wall Street, which is beautiful. Amanda, thanks so much for, for bearing your soul. Thank you to Oliver Stone for bearing his soul in his book, Chasing the Light, in his many films over the years. I admire and appreciate, and I'm also a little bit concerned about everything that he's ever done. Uh, any closing thoughts? No, you said it well. 
Okay. This has been the big picture. Thank you to Bobby Wagner. Thanks for listening to the show. Please wear a mask. And we'll see you next week when we talk about something in the world of movies if we ever get more new movies. See you then.